0: Welcome to From Newcastle, a podcast featuring the latest developments in health, science and culture and the creative arts from Newcastle University. In this series, From Newcastle for the Future, we sit down with our world-leading academics to find out how their research is creating solutions for a better future. Hi, I'm Emily and you're listening to From Newcastle. Today in this episode, I will be talking to Dr. Ahmed Karoufa, Senior Lecturer in Human-Computer Interaction in OpenLab, and Dr. Diego sousa Garcia from the Research Software Engineer team at Newcastle University. In this episode, we will discuss the rapid rise of artificial intelligence, how AI can be used as a tool in education, and how we can address concerns around safety and privacy for children and young people using AI. Welcome, Ahmed and Tiago. If you could just introduce yourself and give me a little bit of an overview of your work.
1: Sure, Uh, I'm Tiago Sosa-Garcia. I'm a research software engineer with the research software engineering team at Newcastle University. And what that basically means is that whenever anyone around the university has any requirements for the research project that involve developing software, creating websites, creating um, research code of any kind, they tend to come to us and we tend to try to help them. And usually do.
2: My name is Ahmed Karufa. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Computing in a research group called Open Lab. My main research area is human-computer interaction, but the more specifically it's about educational technology.
0: And uh, can you just give me a little bit of your background and how you got into like, the work that you're doing at the moment?
1: Uh, mostly by accident, to be honest. Um, so even though I'm now working as a research software engineer, my degree is in early modern literature. That's where I have my doctorate in, uh, which basically means I look at very old texts like Shakespeare time. But before that, I had a, the start of an education in computer engineering and some professional experience in computer engineering. And because of those two interests, when I started looking for a job, I was interested in a field called digital humanities, which is basically digital approaches to uh, humanities subjects. And through that, I eventually got uh, involved with the English Association, which is the national group of people that sort of promotes the study and the teaching of English uh, to talk to a few young writers and to talk about the influence of the digital technology and creativity. And I had no idea what I was going to do. So I started looking at text generating AI and that's how sort of I have got started into this field.
0: That's cool. What about you, Amit?
2: Um, I'm older, so I have a longer history. <laughs> uh, so my BSc and MSc is in electronics engineering, but then I worked in software development for a long while. And then I did a PhD in open lab in education and technology and computing science, and then had a startup, and then went back to academia full-time as a senior lecturer. My research was not about AI, it was about education technology in general. But then one of my uh, previous PhD student co-founded a company uh, called Kino about education technology. And uh, I started working with them as well. Uh, so now part-time university, part-time Kino. And in Kino, we started using uh, generative AI a lot uh, and exploring its potential, and I saw a the big research questions that we have around the impact of generative AI in education. So now I'm directing my research in uh, university as well around AI.
0: So yeah, I think you just sort of led on to my last question, which was really that we're here to talk about artificial intelligence, which is a topic that's been really hotly debated at the moment, uh, particularly since the launch of ChatGTP and GPT-4. But I thought we should start at the beginning. What is AI and how has it kind of evolved recently?
2: Okay, that's a big question. <laughs> so AI, has many meanings and many interpretations. and But I think what got people interested and in what creating all this fuss recently is a specific type of AI, which is called generative AI. And generative AI is very different from the previous logical uh, AI and uh, the typical machine learning AI. So in generative AI, is mostly toward training really, really l- large models. And the bit that got people interested is about large language models, which is a field of uh, part of natural language processing. So it's training really massive models around based on as much content as they can get. And it's a probabilistic model. So giving it part of a sentence, it will try to complete it based on all the data it has been trained on. And when we talk big, we talk big. So GPT-3, in terms of the number of parameters they have to train to make it work, it uses 175 billion parameters. When we say large, it is large. (laughs) So yeah, so that's that's the part of AI that got people interested and because they started applying it, the same techniques applying it to text, which is ChatGPT and BART and Bing and then images like uh, Journey and Dali and uh, Stable Diffusion and then they started applying it in, in music and video and yeah, so I think that's the bit that is creating all this uh, conversation <laughs> and interest.
1: I think what's interesting is that even though it is new technology in the grand scheme of things, that the specific approach that GPT-4 and 3 used is not that new. It's from 2017, right from a paper that proposed something called attention and transformers, which sort of changed how natural language processing happens. So the big difference from ChatGPT-3 that came out about three years ago, maybe? GPT-4, which is what we're doing now, we're talking about now, is just the size, the immense size of of training data that was fed into it. But the technology that creates the output is still the same, which is still interesting. So some people are arguing whether we're sort of plateauing now and there's only so much we can do with even more data behind it and we just need to find new methods of getting the, the same results or better results really at this point. But one of the reasons why I think it's so... In the news right now is because apparently it comes close to what we might identify as being some sort of intelligence similar to human intelligence now. I mean, I don't think it is yet, it's very close by. Uh, but I think that's why it's sort of scaring people so much and exciting people so much.
0: And I think actually today we we're trying to talk about the other parts of it, which is the kind of how it can help people and help the world. And children today are sort of growing up in a world that's very different to what. I grew up in definitely because I'm a millennial and I still remember dial-up internet. But uh, children today are sort of growing up in a world with like unlimited access to the internet, voice-controlled devices and toys. So, in terms of that other side of it, like how do you feel? Kind of AI can be useful as a to help and support learning.
1: From my perspective, I always I'm an optimist, (laughs) so I think it could be useful. And I always tend to think of it as a tool. Perhaps I'm being too sort of compartmentalizing a bit too much here thinking it just as a tool because not everyone sees it that way but I do like to see it that way and I like to think of the example of the calculator which is an incredible piece of technology that came out in the 50s Incredibly expensive when it came out. Only top companies would actually have one very large calculator that they used. And then suddenly it becomes democratized, and people use it everywhere for everything, and becomes a part of learning itself. Right? You go to school, and now you have a graphic calculator that allows you to bypass some of the things that would otherwise occupy your mind to sort of maybe reach towards um, higher concepts that you wouldn't otherwise have the capacity to understand. And I like to think that we might reach that level of utility with AI. It would become that sort of tool that will help students, children, and young people to understand more advanced concepts um, without having to worry too much about expression. Because if we're talking about text-generating AI, that's what we're talking about, is expression of ideas. So they're more focused on the ideas rather than the expression. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't learn how to express themselves. That should be sort of the fundamentals. But at a certain point, using that kind of knowledge becomes wasteful when someone can do it faster than you, and you can sort of focus on something a bit more advanced. So that's where I would like to see the use of AI go.
2: Yeah, same. I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, I realize the challenges and the potential issues that it can raise, uh, especially in education, but I'm super excited about it. and. In terms of what it can do to education, it can help people, and I'm using it a lot as a, even as a developer, and because it helps not only in language, there is a big part of it uh, in terms of coding. So it, it's really good at writing code or helping in writing code, and this is a big part of the research that we do in terms of how it will affect the teaching of computing science. If AI can write the code for you, what does that mean? But uh, it, as as you said, it's. Uh, can be a brainstorming tool that can help you explain complicated concepts. It can help those who struggle with English, because it's their second language, write really good English. So uh, it, it levels the playing field in that sense. And this is just the beginning.
0: So it's quite an exciting time to be kind of working in this at the moment. And I know that Tiago, you've been working on a new AI tool at the moment called the Creativity Engine. Uh, do you want to just tell me a little bit about it?
1: Sure. So the Creativity Engine, kind of came out of that experience that I told you about before, about talking to a bunch of young writers uh, uh, with the English Association and showing them what generative AI could do. And one of the things that they told me was that it sparked their creativity a lot because, you know, we all experience the problem of the blank page. We don't know where to go, where to start something that we're writing. If you're a young writer trying to write fiction of some sort, Sometimes that first sentence or that second sentence is your biggest problem. Or sometimes you reach a crossroads in the story and you don't know where to go. So we developed the creativity engine to sort of help those young writers go past those roadblocks in the story. And the way it works is, you know, it's pretty simple and we designed it in the way that tried to make it as familiar as possible. So it's sort of framed as a chat app in which Um, The user writes an input, and then you have a response from what we call the authors. And we call the authors because we worked in partnership with Seven Stories, which is the National Center for Children's Literature, which is here in Newcastle. And they have a very rich archive of children's literature full of drafts, of notes, of illustrations, all sorts of things. And what we did is we got in touch with them, um, and they were very enthusiastic about the idea, and we used some of their archive to fine tune the language model. Um, So that's why we figured they're talking with the authors. They're not just talking to the authors, they're talking to a whole bunch of of text from the internet and um, all, all sorts of places. But it's been fine tuned to sort of produce the kind of literature that children are used to reading. So imagine you want to start a story, you start uh, a man walked down the path, you input that, and then a few seconds later, the authors come back with a continuation of your story, and then you reply with a continuation, then they reply with a continuation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it goes. And this is a big collaboration between the Newcastle University, specifically NURI, the Newcastle University Humanities Research Institute, the English Association, the Orientering Institute, all sort of came together to to help build this thing. So, are you
2: training an existing model? Like
1: yes, a, yeah. we've. So when we started, GPT four was not available yet. GPT three was available but as a locked a kind of project, and we needed to sign up and stuff. Um, so we eventually did not go with GPT. We went with another company called Eleuther AI which is open source and they're very open and they're sort of positioned themselves as being this open source version of GPT. And we used a specific model called GPT-neo, uh, which I think has a much smaller number of parameters, about 3.5 billion, I think, if I'm not mistaken. It is equivalent in terms of the quality of the output to GPT, between GPT-2 and 3. So it is a simplistic model compared to the things that we have now available, but you know, development takes some time.
0: And you kind of mentioned it a little bit before, but you know, some people might say that's taken out the decision-making and the creativity. I mean, how do you see that?
1: Yes, it, it is a risk. Um, and if you go to ChatGPT now, it can write a story for you without anything else other than you saying write me a story. We tried to prevent that by limiting how the user interacts with the text-generating AI. So the user always needs to start the story. So we have uh, sort of an old school, like suggestions for first line to sort of go past the blank page problem. But after that, the user always needs to continue, and the and the output that you get from the model is always limited to a small number of words. I think it's about twenty five words that we get at a time. So it's meant to be like really short text messages, almost between between the two the two sides. So that's one way in which we encourage users to write their bits and to take action on their bit. The other way is that we don't give them a singular answer. So we we present three possible avenues in which the story can continue and the user needs to make a decision of where to take the story based on the suggestions. And we also have a functionality that allows users to edit everything and delete things and add things, etc. So we try to put as much control as possible to the user and limit as much as possible the actual generated text so that it only works as a starting engine.
0: And has it been used yet or like when's it gonna... It has,
1: it has. I mean, we've worked very closely with the English Association throughout all of this, so we had tests with students. I've been in, in schools with students getting them to work with them. And the reaction has been really interesting. It's been available since May this year. But to be honest, I've been shying away from looking at the analytics, because it's either going to be too much or too little. <laughs> there's no there's no middle ground. But it has been used, and there's been a lot of communication about it. The English Association, in particular, has been very supportive, and they're very excited about the possibilities that, that this, this uh, software might have for teaching and learning.
0: That's really cool. And uh, what about you, Ahmed? Uh, you mentioned uh, you're working on a sort of educational app, and how have you been sort of bringing AI into that?
2: Yeah, so uh, as I said, like Kino was founded, like one of the co founders is a, an alumni and a previous PhD student. And in addition to me, three of the staff are like computing science alumni as well. Uh, so, in, in Kino, again, is a general uh, l- knowledge app similar duolingo but for knowledge so it has content and it has this spaced repetition uh, aspect to it so it has asks you questions and asks you to like repeatedly over certain schedule but we're using AI in a number of ways and this again this is what inspired my or motivated my research academically as well so in content creation so we have authors uh, writers and but AI is in the loop AI helped in the general like plan for content and uh, creating certain like headlines and then in first draft of the content and there's always like a, it's a cycle between the author and ai and then we use ai to generate questions so it's really good at generating questions from text whether it's multi-choice or fill in the blanks and so on and uh, we want to explore things further in terms of building models that measure the level of learning so Uh, some analytics to uh, train a machine learning model and in the future more personalized learning so you can have conversation with AI about the content that you are reading so that's on the uh, product side but academically again the big questions is what will be the impact of AI in education in terms of the challenges and opportunities and the obvious thing that everyone talks about is if AI can answer my coursework or assessment, then and then how will this change assessment? And this is in terms of written essays, in terms of coding, because as I said, there are many models specifically trained for coding. And there are tools that are integrated into the development environment where you can code and it will suggest stuff for you. And there is research where they gave it like a 100 exam papers in computing science, and it sold, I think, 80 or 70, I can't remember. Uh, of them like correctly. So uh, it is very good at that aspect, which also means we need to change the way we do assessment. But I think Newcastle University's uh, policy is is really good in terms of it is encouraging the use of AI, as long as we design assessments that are not answerable by AI. So students will be encouraged to use AI to help them learn, but as long as they cannot just like give the assessment to AI and and copy and paste, uh, then, we need to think of how we are going to change our assessment we probably need to have more contextualized assessment so it's something specific about something the students is working on or a very like a context specific problem so it's not something the ai is aware of or trained on that that's a
1: big challenge from the english side as well is we've sort of grown accustomed to evaluating learning in a certain way that tends to be how the student expresses themselves. But that's not the meat of English literature or English language, really. The meat of it is specific domain knowledge that sometimes gets obfuscated because people are so concerned about how the students are expressing themselves because those are seen as transferable skills. It is a big challenge, but I completely agree with with your approach. It is about changing what we evaluate and how we evaluate, and that's particularly the case when we have text generating AI, they is capable of writing an essay better than, than, um, than some 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 students. To be frank, um, at certain stages of their learning, but perhaps the expression is not what we should be looking for. It's the ideas about the text, about contemporary society and and and, and, and historical society that we should be looking at. But even then there's a question how do we evaluate that how we how do we make that explicit for students that they realize that perhaps it doesn't matter if they write well or not so well that what we're looking for is the ideas about the text about you know everything around it yeah
2: it's really challenging because some are calling back for exams Mm -hmm. so you'll be like in a controlled environment and exams so you cannot use ai but we've been for a while trying to move away from exams to what's called like authentic assessment. Mm-hmm. So coursework is more authentic. So now going back to exams feel like a step backward. And the idea of authentic assessment is we want to assess them on the type of assignments or type of work that they will actually they, they do in their professional life. So if we go back to the exam room, that's, that's a big uh, step backward. So we want to keep this. Element of authenticity because they will likely use it in, in their professional lives. So. Yeah, I completely agree,
1: and to me, not only is a step backwards, it almost feels like putting your hands in your ears and ignoring what's going on around you. Because students are going to use those technologies anyway, particularly <laughs> if we make a point of saying you cannot use it <laughs> for any reason. <laughs> so yeah, just, and they are using it. Yeah, yeah we, we know of
2: many students yeah. are actually using it now in their coursework. So. Yeah, exactly. So
1: it, it feels like a dangerous route to take that that way of completely walking down and not thinking through what's the best way of using this to help you rather than turning it into a cheating aid.
0: And in terms of actually like the kind of opposite of that, like a digital divide. Um, I mean this might not be totally true of people in school and computing, but could be true in other areas. Like, you know, how can we kind of make sure that children and young people aren't kind of left behind if this technology is getting used more and more like in education and
2: so Yeah, this is this is a big issue in education. So digital divide has always been a problem. Like the the, uh, for example, it started like when when MOOC the massive open online courses were introduced. Everyone thought like this will level the playing field because they are free courses by the some of the top uh, universities in the world. But then those who took advantage of MOOCs are those who have access to internet, have access to so you need access to the hardware, you need access to the uh, internet itself. Uh, and then you need to know how to use it best. And so you need to be in an environment that encourages you. You need to know how to self-regulate your learning to take advantage of it. Of it. So it ended up increasing the digital divide because those who know how to use it are using it better. Those who don't are left behind. And probably with AI, it will, we'll have the same issue. So while it's uh, there are many free ways of using AI, including ChatGPT, still, some countries, they don't have access to, to that, so that's one problem. But then, uh, again, to use it, you need the hardware, the software, the know-how, and you need to use it well as well, which, again, the parental involvement and the the school and the environment. So uh, there was this uh, really nice book about MOOC called Failure to Disrupt, and he ends up with the conclusion that. It takes a village to raise a child so to help battle this digital divide we need to work collectively to address this you need to educate people about ai and you need to provide the resources to use it yeah and there are certain
1: steps that individual developers who are creating ai solutions might want to take one of them is try to make it free a point of access particularly if it's for um, you know aimed at, at children and young people but even then there are the bigger issues of do you know how to use it well or do you know how to do you even have access to a computer on internet that are so systematic that it's impossible for, for an individual researcher to address at the same time i don't think it's being used fast enough that we'll see that device grow up immediately but it will provoke it and it will provoke it to widen more and more
0: I think you can't really talk about AI without this question, because it's some people are a bit scared of AI. <laughs> that's just the thing that's happening. And do you think there are kind of risks in terms of things like working with children, like things like privacy and security? You know, how do you see that?
2: I think in terms of privacy and security, it's not that different from when kids work on use social media and, and share information. When, for example, you chat with ChatGPT, in theory, your data, I mean, they store it, but they don't like access it at a personal level and they keep it for a certain period of time and delete it but whether children uh, will share too much information and whether this information will be accessed by someone that's the risk is it any different from them using social media and again talking to people they shouldn't be talking to and sharing so much information I don't think it's very different from the challenges we already have in terms of privacy and data privacy, as particularly for children and vulnerable people.
1: I agree. I mean, the, the major problem that I see with the specific use of, of AI, of text generating AI, is with less scrupulous players or less thinking players that might use some form of continuous integration development, which means that everything that you enter into it will train and refine the AI further because then you can't control how it's going to come out so there's a chance as as you were saying Ahmed that children share more than they should like addresses like identifying information uh, that then will come out you know three months later somewhere else to someone else that might be looking for that kind of information anyway so that's one of the things that people need to be aware of that's one of the reasons not the main reason because the main reason is cost and, and time and money but that's one of the reasons why we with the creativity engine decided not to have continuous integration and deployment for one thing because we believe that the results in the end of it would be worse than they would be at the start but also because we could not control uh with children write in and the kind of information they shared and that's the reason why we don't save any of their, um, of their inputs. We don't have any registered users or anything like that. Everything's completely anonymous. And we get rid of all the logs every 30 days. So that's the only place where, where you can see what, what anyone has written and we get rid of them. It is a security, and you can see how nefarious actors might choose to ignore that particular concern. But as Ahmed was saying, it's the same process with social media. And, and many of the things that the children grew up with already
0: following on from that like how do you think that sort of leaders and lawmakers should just kind of ensure that children and young people are protected with AI
1: tell me what I think they shouldn't do they shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have any jerk reaction to anything even if you know we're still at, at the beginning of this kind of technology being available to the wider public if something goes wrong which more likely than not will at some point in the and actually not not that long ago when GPT-3 came out, there was a story in the news about someone who was using it to create text adventures that eventually, I'm sure if you remember this, it went into very dark corners of the internet very quickly. So I, I don't think they should overreact to those kinds of things because they will happen. They should keep an open mind and keep a an attentive eye and perhaps just ensure that whatever comes to a certain section of the public like children comes from a, a good well-meaning organization with well-meaning intentions and maybe not prevent entirely but perhaps don't allow Hasbro and Mattel to start making <laughs> toys with AI just yet, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But it, it is impossible to, to say what, what is the best course of action, what I think – the worst course of action is is to take too many measures at once because that will create, you know, uh, channels for people to go around the legislation, make things worse, or it will stifle innovation and stifle creativity.
2: Yeah, there will always be challenges in education. Like the the, the other thing that I think I, I didn't talk about, which relates to the digital divide, or it is at least a ch- big challenge, is the biases. So these models, as you said. They magnify, not necessarily magnify, but at least reflect the biases uh, of the data they've been trained on. So if the data assumes all computer scientists are male, then this is what it will reflect, right? And this is something we want, we've been working really hard to, to, to address. So if students use it to create more content or use it to learn, and they will be fed back these biases. So we need to educate people about AI and the fact that it has biases and it reflects the biases in the society or in the data it has been trained on
0: there is obviously one of the fears is the idea that the ai itself is sounds quite personable oh it's possibly sentient but it probably isn't but how do you respond to that kind of stuff that you know a young person might sort of feel like the chatbot that they're talking to is has more than it actually does going on
1: Kind of an age-old problem there's that famous story about eliza which was one of the first and sort of text generating ais in the 60s i believe in which one of the assistants so it was designed to be kind of like a therapist and all it did was reply um and how do you how does that make you feel and how do you feel about that (laughs) Uh, and even at that simplistic level someone who knew what was going on uh who worked in the lab still develop this sort of weird attachment to eliza um so we're, we're much closer to that now with with something that that gets so personable and so almost real to us i guess that's why chat gpt always starts with as a large language model <laughs> i'm not sure if i can answer that i mean question. it is
2: it is so good yeah, it's hard to do, to believe that it's, it's not a person it is that good so especially like in, in casual conversations okay.
1: I guess, as Ahmed was saying earlier, is education is educating about people about what AI is and what it's doing and how it works and how you should work with it is really the only answer to it. But even then, humans are humans they will behave in the way that they will behave and they will feel the things that they will feel. And to some extent, um, that is not necessarily a bad thing, because some people, I know thinking of it as a, as a sort of a, a therapeutic. Tools. some people have trouble connecting with other humans and they might just need that little push to make them feel a bit more comfortable and maybe after talking to ChatGPT or whatever other tool there is, they might go and knock on their nail pistol and ask them for something else. So that's the optimist in me again saying this, this could be good even in that nefarious scenario.
2: Yeah, the potential again is massive for good and for bad so I I share the optimism.
0: (laughs) I like that. I like the optimism. Uh, And kind of riding on the optimistic wave, you know, uh, what do you kind of hope to see uh, like with AI for children and young people in the future? You know, what would be your kind of dreams of things that could be possible?
2: So obviously, yeah, there should be a lot of education about AI. And they need to, we need to focus on that as part of the computing science curriculum. Uh, Maybe that's like an easy topic to introduce AI to, to uh, children and students, and the whole community as a whole. Yeah, utilize it more in education. It, it's really good at explaining concepts, it's really good at giving it a difficult piece of text and ask it to explain it to a five-year-old or to an 11-year-old or to any age you pick or a level of complexity, it does that really, really well. Even sometimes I read like some advanced statistics somewhere that I'm like really familiar with. I'll just copy and paste and ask it to explain it. And it does that really well. So I can see the potential uh, in education as almost like a personal tutor. But we definitely need the, the, the human contribution because it's all about like the motivation, uh, which is something that some machines so that cannot like motivate people. Children will not be motivated by a machine. But yeah, we need to use it more, take advantage of it as much as possible, uh, but become aware of its challenges and educate people around it or about it. To, to some extent, I would like it to go, as I said earlier, go the way the calculator
1: and become another tool that people can use at school to help them write, to help them understand concepts, as you were saying, Ahmed. And um, that's kind of like the, the most obvious um, use case from my perspective. I also... From my own sort of personal experience, I have a small child, and I'm not British, so I'm Portuguese, and I speak Portuguese uh, with my son. Uh, but I'm the only sort of language community example that he has here, right? He, he talks to my parents occasionally, every couple of days or so, but it's not the same. So it would be good to see a use of AI that would help people from, from, you know, bilingual or multilingual children, for example, to develop language of their less used language because it demands sort of interaction. It's not just a passive kind of learning. You can't just hear it. You need to actually talk back. So I can sort of picture in the 10 years or 15 years, someone developing something that will allow them to practice that second language or third language uh, with a variety of accents, with a variety of of, of sort of regionalisms and stuff like that so that they would be better prepared on that second language that they can be otherwise with a single parent, for example.
2: I think school-wise also we need to be careful like not to go too deep into the personal tutoring because we need the social aspects kids need to learn together they need to they need to work together they need to learn how to collaborate together so uh, a- everywhere you read about future of AI and education they'll talk about personal tutors and adaptive learning and i mean this this is happening now you can actually chat to ai and chat gpt and it will help you a lot but uh, the social al- element that we need to maintain Um, and support students in developing their social and emotional skills.
0: Yeah, and I guess there hasn't been much conversation about the idea of, like, communally using AI, but actually that could be a thing that happens in the future. But now, like, human-AI
2: collaboration is a thing. In in RCI, there's a lot of research on human-AI collaboration, or at least AI being part of a team. And this is the, the, the research that we are working on now. It was a team project, and one of the questions we are asking is, like, how did AI affect the team dynamics or was it considered part of the team? Or we, we are looking at this because that can be a very interesting angle. It's just another agent or another collaborator.
0: Mm, that is interesting. Um, so we've basically come to the end and this question has nothing to do with AI, uh, but it's a question that we like to ask all our guests. What is your favourite thing about Newcastle?
1: <laughs> That's the hard question now. <laughs> um, favourite thing? There are a lot of favorite things. I love the people. I love. I think it's perfectly located. You know, have the beach on one side, have the countryside on the other side. You have a lovely river. Um, uh, it's, it's so many nice places around town with Jasmine Dean with the Keyside. I think I can, this is going to be very personal as well. But to me, it's because it reminds me of my hometown a lot. So I come from Porto, which is also. A town that grew up in the same period that Newcastle did is all very industrial and full of iron buildings and iron bridges. There's actually a very famous iron bridge in Porto as well. So walking around Newcastle feels like home. So I think that's my favorite thing about Newcastle. It feels like home.
2: Yeah, I've been asked this question a lot and I think to me the answer is the size of Newcastle. It's just Mm -hmm. the right size. So before Newcastle, I've lived in two really big cities, which is Baghdad and Dubai. And both of them are really big getting from point a to point b is always like a nightmare traffic jams and so on it's big enough to have all the facilities of a big city so it has the metro it has good health services good like shopping centers and so on and not too big to be a nightmare to move like travel from anywhere like whenever someone like wants you to be there's 20 minutes right it's like yeah. 20 minutes to drive to any other point in Newcastle and it's 30 minutes to the countryside, uh, 40 minutes to the beach. So yeah, I really like the size of the city, ideal size for a city.
0: Thank you very much for coming and talking to us.
2: Thank you.
0: If you would like to find out more about Ahmed and Tiago's research, visit podcasts.ncl.ac.uk forward slash from Newcastle. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Newcastle. If you enjoyed it, then please click the subscribe button. We love to hear your comments or suggestions, so please get in touch at fromnewcastlepodcast at ncl.ac.uk or via social media at from NCL podcast.